0: that's exactly where humans are irreplaceable for not just the short term, but the long term. Those are places that are very difficult to automate because there's a lot of creativity and there's a lot of communication that's going into that moment of executing a task.
1: Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders, rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. Hey, listeners of Superhumans at Work podcast by Valley. Give me a quick shout out to our regular listeners. If you're enjoying this content and all the episodes that have been coming up, be sure to leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts if you're listening there. And if you're listening on any other platform, do connect with me on Instagram or LinkedIn at Jason Mark Campbell. And let me know what are your favorite episodes? What topics would you like us to bring up? We have incredible guests in the pipeline and we want to interact more with you. So can we bring you the type of content that you're looking for. And so we really appreciate the reviews. When you send those in, we get to reach more people who are looking for this kind of content where they can become superhumans at work themselves. So let's get started with this incredible episode and enjoy. Hi everybody, this is Jason Campbell and welcome back to Superhumans at Work. The guest that I have today is gonna be talking about the future of work. And we're hearing a lot of terms around AI, big data, We're talking about how our roles are changing in the workplace. And what we're going to talk about is this idea of ghost work. Now, I'm going to be very honest with everybody. When I first heard about the term ghost work, I had no idea what it meant. But here we're talking about the concept of stopping Silicon Valley from building the new global underclass. What does that mean? How do we go into deeper topics about what is happening to us as a society as these technologies are emerging? Mary L. Gray is a senior principal researcher at Microsoft Research, as well as an E.J. Safra Center for Ethics fellow and a Berman Klein Center for Internet Society faculty advocate at Harvard University. She maintains a faculty position at the School of Informatics, Computing and Engineering with affiliations with Anthropology, Gender Studies at Indiana University. She's had her work featured in so many popular venues, such as The Guardian, New York Times, LA Times, Nature, The Economist, you name it speaking very openly on what are we seeing in the trends in anthropology, and how is this going to be affecting our work in the future. I'm super excited to dive right into the topic of ghost work. Mary, thank you so much for being here.
0: Oh, thanks for the invitation, Jason.
1: Mary, you dropped this term ghost work. I was doing my research and I was very interested. Like, what is this idea of ghost work and why should we all be aware of this?
0: So my co-author, Siddharth Suri, who's a computer scientist at Microsoft Research, We came up with this term because we wanted to capture not specific types of jobs, not niche jobs, but what happens when you take the value of a person bringing their contributions to a computational process, so something that can be automated, but where you really need that moment of human judgment and looking at those places where a person is put into a loop. And at the same time, their value, their contribution is literally erased from the proposition either by the company of what's valuable to the consumer, or that it's literally invisible to the person who's benefiting from that moment of human judgment. And importantly, it's really describing work conditions. It's not describing a specific kind of occupation. It's describing a way of organizing labor that is moving across many sectors that is happening right below the surface of the process of artificial intelligence moving into many different occupations.
1: Hmm. So if I'm understanding correctly, we're talking about these types of roles where there's a whole lot of activities that happen maybe in an automated process or a computer-generated process, and the only human input is just someone kind of checking the box, saying like, this is okay or this is not okay. Is this how I'm understanding it? Maybe an example here would help.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, and then that's one of the biggest challenges is that this is work that literally it's work we often do not see. So let me give you a couple of concrete examples. So one stream of this work does go toward training artificial intelligence. It's the work of data labeling, where somebody, for example, might look at a set of images and say a computer programmer a software developer wants to develop a way of recognizing and sorting images of poodles from labradoodles <laughs> that's not that easy a computer can't see it genuinely is just looking at the measurements and the geometric shapes of images so the easiest way to develop a sorting mechanism to automatically be able to separate pictures of poodles from pictures of Labradors is to have a person annotate those pictures so that you know that when you're training algorithms to do that automated sorting, that you have what's called ground truth. That you know you've got a human who's confirmed, yes, when you bring up an image of a labradoodle. In fact, the images are going to match that geometric shape, and we know that because a person has confirmed that. That same process is going into anything that computer scientists need to use training data to be able to effectively develop algorithms that can make decisions that approximate or imitate what a human would do. So that's one stream of work, and you could say that means that stream of work is there specifically to work a person out of a job, you know, to take over what a human can do. There's a second stream of work that most of us don't realize is growing. I'm going to use the example of telehealth. So in healthcare, having somebody who effectively sends out a text that reminds you to take your medication, particularly if you're an elderly person. You can do that. You can push it out automatically, have some sort of timer that says this time of day a person should receive a text. But what if a person isn't sure whether they should take that medication because they just had a cup of coffee? Having a person in the loop, having a service where you can immediately move from pushing an automated script of text to shifting it to a person who's effectively a customer service representative to take up that question, that's this other stream of work that's growing beneath the surface of a lot of artificial intelligence and efforts to automate things. So think of this world of work and imagine any place where you can literally source, schedule, manage, ship and bill some sort of task or project through just a sprinkle of automated processes, artificial intelligence and application programming interfaces. So just software and the internet you can effectively reorganize work into a long string of projects and tasks that a person can pick up anywhere in the world.
1: If I see this correctly, it means we've basically got this new line of work that exists where people can just do these micro, very low intensity, very low engagement types of tasks, but still need kind of a human. It's almost like the human is there until the AI can learn better on how the human was doing it, so that eventually the human probably won't be needed. But there's kind of a learning curve. And this is where you need, I would say you need a lot of people to be able to do this, let's say, at a scale, which I think is fascinating. But the question is, it sounds like there's an inherent problem within this system. And I wanted to maybe highlight that. So right now, the way you describe it, I was like, oh, great. It sounds like a lot of people can get little jobs, which could be helpful.
0: Well, so the challenge here is that those little jobs, the end goal is to have lots of little jobs. To get to little jobs, you often have to have these larger jobs that are collaborations among teams of people who are doing pieces of that project until you can figure out what's routine, what's rote enough that it can be a computable, executable process, right? So if you think about those two streams of work, we call this the paradox of automation's last mile. You have artificial intelligence pushing to take over human labor, to be able to basically have us outsource any of those projects and tasks that really can be predictable and that we can rely on that prediction so much that we no longer have to think about having a person in the loop. The example of the Labradoodle and Poodle images is a a good one. But importantly, this paradox of reaching, applying artificial intelligence to more and more ways in which we get work done means that we're always striving for automation. And in many cases, the AI is going to fall short. We know that it can't accomplish the fidelity of a person answering a call for help, quite literally. So to that example of telehealth. So in those cases, There's, at the same time, efforts to automate pieces of that workflow. There's as much energy among firms to create startups, business models that say, you know what, I'm not actually trying to get rid of the human in the loop. I want them there, but I'm going to really scale back when I have them present. I don't have them present for the entire consultation with a patient. I have them there for that moment of sending a text. And the biggest challenge is that There are so many places where we have picked the low-hanging fruit of AI. So when it comes to image recognition or when it comes to any sort of task where there is a definite yes or no, AI will be quite successful. Manufacturing, great example. You can have a robot do mechanized tasks. In most cases, it's because literally you've completely rebuilt a factory floor so that everything is as predictable as possible. So manufacturing, great place where you see automation able to take over a lot of human tasks. But the world of services healthcare, anything around retail, anytime you need to be able to anticipate and read what is it that somebody needs or wants. And I think actually humorously, anytime you know a person actually will expect an apology if you get it wrong, that's exactly where humans are irreplaceable for not just the short term, but the long term. Those are places that are very difficult to automate because there's a lot of creativity And there's a lot of communication that's going into that moment of executing a task. Like that's the place where we've completely underestimated how valuable people are to the most what seem like mundane tasks, but they're actually quite complicated. And they're often unpredictable situations where you need a person there who will pick up the shortcomings of artificial intelligence.
1: And so when we look at this, to me, as someone who's very business oriented, I'm like, this sounds awesome from a business perspective. And here I know we're talking about making sure we don't end up in a situation where we build a global underclass. Am I right to assume that what we're saying is that as these automated processes are becoming really like micro tasks, and I guess I would assume, I mean, I've worked with outsourcing working with virtual assistants. I see the cost of labor is lower. I've automated tasks to a point where it's just like, I just need someone to go in and do click, click, and I can afford to pay less. Are we saying that as we do this in a mass scale, there's going to be a very low paying class of labor that would emerge from this? And it's our responsibility to kind of educate ourselves. And I feel like this isn't the first time. We've probably seen this happen with different technologies in the past.
0: Probably my favorite chapter in the book is a history of our efforts to automate out the human in the loop. And from the beginning of the industrial revolution, we always had people around the edges of what, for example, a textile loom could do. You know, automated looms were an incredible innovation. They could mass manufacture shirts. And if you wanted to sell a shirt that had a fancy bow or button, you literally had to take that shirt and the buttons and bows and send it off to mostly farm families who sat around a kitchen table and sewed the button and the bow, the flourish on the shirt that really arguably gave the shirt value, gave it distinction. So in that case, that's piecework. That's where the term comes from. We've always had these places in technological innovation that were just beyond the capacity of the machine that we built. We've got to keep that in mind that most of the history of how we price labor, the economic models we have of supply and demand, of the products that we build, are organized in some ways limited by the way we picture what's valuable in that equation. It's the end product. So, what do we do in a future where most of what we give each other is support? Most of what we do for each other is collaborate. We create. We entertain. We inform. We serve each other. That is the vast majority of economic activity now around the world. We now are innovating in this place where we can automate some of that. Most of that is really not automatable, but we also don't have an economic model for how do you value a person who is effectively the location of production, like we are the, you know, the the factory. And what we produce is something intangible.
1: Hmm. You know, it's it's interesting as you're giving these examples through history. I can only think, I remember watching, I think it was on YouTube, there was a video of A manufacturing plant which I think is one of the first examples as you said of where automation happened and I just remember there was like six individuals that were just sitting on a machine and the machine was basically pressing things it was like if people could see the visual I'm trying to create here but it was this pressing machine that was basically gluing two pieces together and this giant press was coming from the ceiling and coming onto the floor and just there were holes in that and those holes were where people were sitting and what would happen is, let's say every five seconds, the press would go down and these people that were sitting were placing the item, then coming back, it would press it in place and move on. And so here you had an element of human, but it was like slavery. It was really, really bad. And so what I'd love to know is what are the things that we can do? Because already we're seeing that us advocating for you know better treatment with an offshore manufacturing, you saw that the consumers are the ones that are coming up and demanding for better treatment in these areas. What are the things that we need to be aware of to ensure that as we automate even a side of services, that we're not kind of dehumanizing the process and instead really respecting the human element?
0: I mean, probably one of the most important things for me about this research, about the book, is to say it starts with seeing people. It starts with seeing that there are people behind our search experiences. When you get a good web result, it's because someone was part of looking at a link and creating some connection between the relevance of what you see and the keywords that you're entering, for example. Content moderation. Two years ago, if I had said that's actually done by a person, none of us would have really understood how could that work. In fact, it takes a lot of people to be able to look at flagged content that otherwise is very difficult to interpret and quickly be able to come up with a collective, the wisdom of the crowd, analysis to say that's hate speech or that's, you know, a mass shooting. Like it takes people to be able to do that really sophisticated hard cognitive work. It is what we call knowledge work. So, the big difference between the steel press that you're describing and those textile mills is that mechanized process that often we dismiss as mindless. Odds are pretty good. There was actually quite a bit of creativity and cognitive work going into those jobs, but we're pretty dismissive of manual work as also creative and cognitive challenging work. But you can't deny anything that is about looking at information and evaluating it and bringing that sophisticated, again, human capacity for quick judgment to rely on everything you've experienced and say, gosh, I can hear in that person's voice that they don't know whether they should take this pill or not. What we are going to be paying for and need to value more is precisely that that deeply human, impossible to replicate Capacity to care. And so the challenge here is that it's a very different kind of work than the rote mechanistic work that we're used to thinking technology can take care of that. We're talking about a kind of attention to detail and again, this creativity, this capacity for communicating with other groups of people that is beyond most automation, most artificial intelligence. So The pricing that we have, again, for that work, a piece of the history in that chapter is to say, we started moving this kind of cognitive work, this kind of knowledge work, information service work, offshore to the global south. And we got away with paying people much less than we would in a country that had labor protections because we could. You know, it's not because there's anything inherently right about being able to pay someone less because where they live. And, you know, the hard thing as a cultural anthropologist, I can say out loud, we're looking at the legacy of colonialism when we pay somebody less for the same work in a different location. In economics, there's a term for split labor markets. It's when you basically can get away for paying somebody less because of their socioeconomic status or their racial or ethnic background. So, What do we do with the reality that when you're asking someone who's in, you know, Louisville, Kentucky, to do the same kind of work who might be in Phnom Penh, that they perhaps should get very, very similar wages, certainly the same kind of treatment and validation as contributors to what is effectively a service to a consumer. The hard, hard work in front of us as a species is fully moving into that next place where we say we really are going to value each other equally.
1: I love it. And it's such hard questions to answer because we've seen history. And I think everybody listening here, especially coming from a background of Valley, sees the unity in the world. Yet we're also not always aware of the full impacts. I think we take for granted a lot of the automations we see. I know when it comes to AI, even at Mind Valley right now, we know what it takes to sort information. Like we're trying to create the greatest like knowledge, brain, AI. And so we actually have a lot of our employees. for us. It was during the COVID era that we had one of our departments, which was the events were not happening anymore. So we actually took a lot of the people there and said, what if we had everybody go through content and start sorting, tagging so that we actually have AI that can help people determine their outcomes. It was a very Manual process, and I see a a lot of this big data, machine learning, AI. I don't think people realize how much humans are involved in actually doing that. And so, as you're saying this, I'm like, Yeah, I see this happen so much right now with regards to Mind Valley. We're using some of our existing employees, I could see companies that could really really make it so that it's done from a perspective where it's not even being valued, but it's just like, yeah get it done, but we don't care who you are.
0: So I mean so this is what's interesting for me. The study we did, we studied four different businesses. and two of the business models, two of the companies are really stand-ins for what it looks like to challenge and counter the race to the bottom that you're describing having a business say, I'm going to pay as little as possible. Let me see just how cheaply I can get away with getting somebody to do something. It turns out when it comes to cognitive labor, when it comes to knowledge work, where you really depend on a person being sharp, attentive, caring, there are clear diminishing returns. You will not get quality data. You will not get quality outcomes. So, I mean, this is a crude way of putting it. Manual labor, you can make somebody who's sick who physically is fatigued, they can keep pulling the arm of the machine down, right, until they can't. With cognitive work, with knowledge work, this kind of insightful, creative complexity that a human brings to the task, you can't phone that in. It's actually quite taxing. And we know that because we were observing thousands of people, hundreds of people over two years looking at what does it take for them to do this work. You you cannot create an output when it comes to knowledge work of any quality without having people give it their attention. There's no kind of middle ground there. It's in some ways all or nothing when it comes to those moments.
1: It's almost like caring cannot be outsourced
0: hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah.
1: And at the same time, like I can just think of times when, like it's like hiring a writer. I mean, you can get high quality or low quality. You can reduce the cost, but then the output's not as good. And if you're going to be building this kind of technologies that has automation, you need that data to be sound. And that last point does give me hope as we're moving forward that this is going to be recognized. And the companies that value that care, I feel are going to be the winners in this you know, transition where, you know, we talk about the Labradors, and the labradoodle but I know that the level of complexity of what is going to be demanded for machines to learn for data to be sorting you're going to be talking about like more complex data sets and evaluations so it sounds like there's some hope there and maybe in closing I wanted to talk about me as an individual if I'm learning this I don't feel that this is directly impacting me but what are the things that I can do so that I can make sure that the future is moving to a better envisioning of something where, everyone within the process are being more valued. It's bringing us better quality companies, and it's not creating any kind of circumstance where there's enslavement, we could say.
0: So the conclusion of the book is it offers 10 remedies to stop the building of a global underclass. And I wanna offer two that I think are the most poignant. To me, one of them is precisely to recognize this is not a case of us or them. This is the future of work across all sectors. The one thing we know artificial intelligence can do, it's a mechanism that can taskify any project. (laughs) So it can literally take whatever you consider your day job as a doctor, a lawyer, an entrepreneur, and turn it into a string, a long, long series of tasks and projects. And so, that, again, does not have to be inherently a bad or a good thing. It is to recognize that we're not talking about ensuring the future of the least among us. We really are looking at what happens to employment. How is it being reorganized under our feet? And so, technically what we can be doing is equipping people to be perhaps ironically in this moment of covid we're feeling what it's like to be working as distributed teams equip people to be working as distributed teams that's the most important thing we could build is not the capacity to replace somebody being a part of a team but to facilitate them collaborating that is the most unique capacity any winner in these labor markets had. It was their ability to connect with others, to listen to others, you know, to give it their all, but assume that it really wasn't all about them. Like literally anything being produced, they were a part of it. And there was no distinction between their contribution and the contribution of others. It was being woven together by design. That's the design of these labor markets. But there's this other you know, key piece that really stands out for me, which is, we have to stop looking to the private sector to somehow be the place, the stopgap for really bad work conditions. So, let me put it this way. Historically, it was never the market that decided, you know, we really want to establish a decent set of hours that will count as the (laughs) workday. It wasn't the market that said we really shouldn't have child labor. It was not the market that said we shouldn't have slavery there will never be a point at which we can escape the fact that setting the floor for work conditions, that's society's job. That's every citizen's job is to say, this is what we expect from private enterprise if it is going to extract value from a human worker. We're going to accept that there's an exchange here. And in exchange for someone providing their capacity as a person to contribute to economic activity, what they get back is what we collectively decide is the bare minimum. So what will that be? Because we set that floor. You know, most of the global north has benefited from setting that floor. So what will the future of the floor we set? for all workers, for us to stand on what do we want that to be? What would we want that for ourselves? Because that's the reality here. We're not talking about what do we want it for some people someplace else. It's literally, what do you want this to be for your kids, for your families, for yourself?
1: Wow. As we're making this transition, I love the fact that what we're doing here is really making sure that people recognize that we're all in this together. And Mary, thank you so much for sharing these insights here. And I want to give a quick recap for the listeners here as we're talking about the fact that as AI, machine learning, big data is coming, we're seeing a lot of the work that most people take for granted that we're doing every day is being taskified. You see that things are being automated. Things are being drilled down to the bare essentials and the human elements that are always being necessary are being compartmentalized. And if we're not being aware about... What does that mean from an income perspective, a payroll perspective, if what is being created or demanded from that worker is going to be so precise, so descripted that you could literally take someone and make them just pay pennies on the dollar to be able to do that task? And so where's the value that we put to that? We've seen through history, as Mary explained, that We've seen this in the manufacturing, the textile industry, where the work was being moved offshore for people to be doing the labor. But now we're talking about knowledge work is going through a similar transition. How are we going to treat the people that are part of the process that we're going to be taking for granted? I particularly love this discussion because it's bringing us to have more awareness of everything. I remember in the 90s when there was a huge revolt against nike for their factories which demanded nike to make a shift and become more ethical in their supply chain and as we are consumers and we're all in this together it's up to us to just be aware that these are the trends that are happening how do we buy what we buy what do we support when it comes to asking our governments to set the rules of what do we accept as a society. Because at the end of the day, the market is going to do what the market does, which is find its best efficiency. In essence, we are the ones that need to take the power back, to be very proud and loud about the awareness that we have and what we want to see in the world. And Mary's concept about the fact that caring is going to be the number one valued resource. As more of the things get automated, let's make sure we put a fair market value on caring. And the more we care about this entire process, the better the world is going to be. So we don't need to look at a Auralian dystopian future. We can look at an equal world where everybody's caring for each other. And I think that's a beautiful world to look forward to. Mary Gray, thank you so much for being here. If you want to go deeper into this work definitely pick up a copy of ghost work how to stop silicon valley from building a new global underclass we just talked about two strategies here there's up to 10 that you can apply so you can be more caring in the process thank you so much for sharing all your insights with us and everybody here thank you for listening and thank you for caring my name is jason campbell and this is superhumans at work a mind valley podcast